Welcome backwards to Bodhi Speak. This podcast today is like all the other podcasts where it's a stream of consciousness. I have a deep aversion towards structuring how these talks unfold. This is the way that I have been trained in the Dharma, you could say. Uh, by my teacher, Maestro Manuel Rufino. And it's 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 serendipitous that he is my teacher because this is actually the way that I instinctually have always kind of uh, spoken. Public speaking and, and things have always kind of been something that I've enjoyed doing. And I've always found it's best, you know, when you have little guideposts here and there, but ultimately you just allow things to flow and whatever arises in the moment is what needs to be said in the moment. And whatever's heard within that context is what needs to be heard. And so a lot of times there's a teaching given that like, you know, what happens in the meditation, what happens during the Dharma talk, it's best in a certain level it stays there. Not because it's like taboo or secretive or because it's, you know, clandestine or something, but because it's the teaching given for that moment and that context. It's not necessarily something that's applicable towards someone else in a different context it was something given to you at that moment at, at that specific timing that you needed to grapple with that was speaking to something that was unfolding within your own inner world or your external circumstances both that was going to provide context for it so this is one of the powerful things about having like a living teacher around is that you are able to experience the living teaching i had a friend go to uh, cambodia and go to angkor wat going around the temples there i've never been but i've heard they're immaculately beautiful like totally stunning and when he came back to our community uh, we were doing a meditation and he was like yeah you know at the end of it, it was like it's really nice to be back at the living temple even though that was absolutely beautiful to experience that it's good to be back at the living temple and this is i think what the initiatic tradition is trying to capture and what i think all traditions fundamentally are trying to capture but interestingly enough some have i think deviated from this uh is the idea of like being like the living teaching the um the living word that's coming through relevant to this moment that can only be fully digested and internalized by someone who heard it at that moment and uh, my mom has done a lot of work in South Africa working with tribal leaders and you know studying the issue of apartheid and helping bring a voice, a platform for you know uh, tribal leaders who were dealing with the issues of class and race in South Africa and speaking to that and interviewing them. And what they say is that when an elder dies in their tradition, it's like a library is burned because it's an oral tradition the teachings passed orally or in the initiatic tradition what's interesting they say is that it's passed from mouth to ear but in silence you know that's an interesting one to ponder it's passed in silence all the teachings are passed in silence but uh it, you know fascinating too though because with uh the vipassana tradition which is said to be rooted in the original meditative practice of siddhartha Gautama, the buddha 
you know, and sustained through India to Burma, where it was preserved and then uncovered by Asen Goenka and then brought out to the rest of the world. And, you know, he claims that this is a very much pure teaching of the Buddha, where there's not all like the, you know, the whistles and the bells and the, um, the colorful hats and the wrathful deities and things like that. It's very stripped down to just the practice of what, of observation of what's happening within you and how this can lead to a state of realization. And Vipassana is like the first discipline that I really tapped into and one that I still holds a very special place in my heart because it's, it, it's radically powerful and transformative. I highly, highly recommend people seek it out. It's all over the world and it's by donation. You don't have to pay anything. What's interesting, their way of preserving the teaching has been by you. They have living teachers present there and they're, they will be in the meditation hall. But it's funny because the teaching itself comes through Goenka, who died in 2013 through these recordings. And the recordings are old. They're epically beautiful. Uh, they're very powerful. And the things he has to say will move you. I mean, undoubtedly, no, no doubt about it. It's just interesting, though, too, because they have a living teacher there. They have living teachers who are present there in meditation. You can go up and ask them questions if you need to. And then they they will call you up. It's so funny, though, because they have virtually nothing really to say. And it's been my experience of it. I, I, I suppose it would depend what your questions are. But for, the, for my experiences and my questions with the practices, there really wasn't anything that they could say to me. Just kind of like, oh, you know, keep going. That's good. Just keep observing the sensations. Stay equanimous. Try not to move. <laughs> Just like, you know, the, the stuff you already heard. There's nothing really said. And I don't doubt the uh, the level of degree that these people were at to be a teacher, recognize that tradition, and sit there. It's, it's a difficult practice. And it's a practice that's rooted not just in a discipline of a technique, but it's also rooted in service to others and, you know, actively bringing forth the dharma so it's rooted in the dharma the sangha and the buddha so it's rooted in the teacher the teachings and the community so like all traditions there's something powerful there but it's interesting that they don't really utilize the teachings of the specific living teacher enough while the um while they're there i mean just this is it's it's just it's kind of a funny thing and on some level i think that this is what keeps a tradition really this is what really keeps the essence of a tradition because i personally have and this is my own perspective on it you could probably find a lot of people that would say i'm just totally cuckoo but i think that the the focus of being in a tradition and what makes a tradition like powerful it's like yeah some things are kept the same but there's also things that deviate and they break off. And like, so for instance, when I was at the Tibetan uh, monastic community in Karnataka in t the winter of 2019, and uh, we were there because the Dalai Lama was coming to inaugurate one of their debate halls, they had different schools within the town. It was like a big town, a monastic town, essentially, and they had different schools. And so they're, they're, they're all teaching probably in essence the same thing, but you know that whichever teacher you go to, you are going to learn something a little bit different about the tradition, perhaps a different technique, a different um, way of relating to what's happening. And who knows how radically different it can get. I mean, it's it, it can – I imagine it could be radically different. It, it might be something that totally challenges the norms. When I was in Bhutan in 2011, <laughs> there's a very famous – 
figure there. He's probably the most famous person in Bhutan after Guru Rinpoche. Guru Rinpoche is like God in Bhutan. He's everywhere. The next famous person that I think I came across was Drukpa Kunli. <laughs> Drukpa Kunli was a called the divine madman. He was like a mystic saint renegade. He was kind of like Tyler Durden of Fight Club, but a little more Buddhist. <laughs> like slept with a lot of women. He slayed demons with his shalong, for lack of a better word. <laughs> and uh, did all kinds of like deviant things. Like he would, there, <laughs> these monks had a, um, a tanka painting. And he's like, oh, wow, look at that Tonka painting. It's so beautiful. And then he goes up to it and he pees all over it. And they're like, oh, my God, what are you doing? And then they look at it and realize he's, he's like, pissing gold all over it and making it even more beautiful. And they're like, oh, it's the divine madman. <laughs> but so you have, you know, you have figures and teachers like that that become renowned for hundreds of years that are obviously totally on their own loop of what the tradition of Tibetan Buddhism entails. Uh and not just limited to Tibetan Buddhism, you know, I think like this is something that a, a teacher is there to remix things. They preserve the essence, but in a lot of sense, the essence is creativity. The essence is awakening and flowering of consciousness. The essence is the upending of the norm and the rules. That's what that to me is what a real teacher does is they upend the given status quo. Now, this is why I say you could counter this, and, and I think it's important that you, you don't just immediately think that every teacher needs to be some kind of divine madman renegade, because if you're coming from certain cultures, that might just not be necessary, nor may that be the person's kind of mentality or attitude towards life and this and that, and what might be of that person at that time, you know, the culture might really support it. The culture might fully embrace that person's alternative, creative way of thinking. And simultaneously, the culture might already be moving in that kind of sense because it's a culture that has been connected to creativity and art. In the Weichol tradition, everyone is an artist. There's not like you say someone, oh, that person is an artist. No, everyone's an artist. Everyone's making music or beadwork or painting or making clothing it's like it's like the very way of existing is through art and that's an, i think that's the case for a lot of traditional cultures is that you have that that thing there where everyone is expressing what's inside of them and a lot of times you'll find that this the upending of things comes i think through more like the clashing of cultures on some level but What's fascinating about this moment in history, I think more than ever, is that especially for those of us in the United States, we are in a bankrupt culture. It's just bankrupt. That's not to say that Western civilization and Western society and all the scientific achievements and philosophical realizations are worthless because they're not. Western medicine is very helpful. Maestro Manuel loves to tell people if you really, if you have a headache, just take some Tylenol. <laughs> I mean, sometimes that's what you need. If there's a physical disability, sometimes surgery is the most beneficial thing. If we're just attacking Western medical science because we've gone too far into our new agey type 
whatever situation, then we really lost the holistic perspective that we're really trying to encompass from going in that direction that there's also good things about western cultures also good things about western philosophy there's also good things about uh industrialization dare i say that <laughs> there's some good things about it there's a lot of problems but there are there's there's these we have to understand that it's not black and white we can't get caught in this like moralistic absolute fundamentalist perspective fundamentalist perspectives are very dangerous it's what allows people to fly planes into buildings and then feel ethically and morally justified in doing so that's a very bad and then there's also on the on the flip side the people that you know i'm killing for my country it's my country it's righteous it's fun you know we are the good they're the bad and perhaps you don't think that this is something that you're really sucked into but also what's your perspective on israel and gaza because that's an interesting meditation. I, I've met people who are claimed to be of very high consciousness that have said all kinds of very interesting things about that situation. So important things to meditate about ourselves, like what, what kind of delusional belief systems are we still holding on to about how we perceive the world to be? And when I said that I think this is a very interesting time to be alive is because this is a moment where we're witnessing the upending of all these structures, of all these facets and institutions and rules and authorities, and we're experiencing now a capacity for transformation and for something else to come through that's more humanistically oriented. Not power top down, but bottom up, grassroots, and you know things like cryptocurrency, the internet in general all kinds of social media and these things are important you know in egypt uh, mubarak i believe is his name the president the dictator in uh, 2011 2010 whenever it was was overthrown because people activists were able to organize through uh social media facebook and things like that that's so that becomes we become have this access now for us to activate and initiate things that subvert established orders. And this is something that real teachers have always done. Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Socrates. Socrates, they say, was put to death for corrupting the youth. Put to death for telling the truth, you could say. In organizing people in the direction towards the truth. And Christ was crucified. There's a reoccurring theme here that, you know, people who oftentimes tell the truth are executed. Nonetheless, to live in a lie is a much worse slow death than execution. You know, like that to live a lie, a long, wonderful, beautiful life in a lie is no life at all. Uh, there needs to be a... We need to volunteer to step up. We need we need a volunteer to step up. Would you please step up, up here to awaken us out of this situation? What is within your agency? Tools available to you. So... I'll step up, for instance. 
previous to this lifetime in quarantine world, I had been traveling around and sharing things like this and doing healing work and meditation and sound and talking a lot and uh, organizing people in different directions. Never towards political activism per se, but always towards awakening consciousness, towards cooperative efforts, towards collaboration. And now I'm in a lockdown mode, as most of us are, which is both a beneficial thing because it allows us to take a step back from what we were doing and think about, okay, what are the tools, what are the methods that were effective, that weren't effective, and bringing forth a more humanistically oriented world. And what is it that can be offered at this point in time in the spirit of revolution? And not, like I said, in a political sense, we're not going against things. It's not reactionary. It's a revolution. It's a, it's a cyclical turning. And it comes through working on yourself with the interests of others. And what is it is that's needed primaries for people to awaken to the reality that we need each other and we need to take care of each other. That we need to embrace our differences and we need to find a unified thread between all of us. And there's something about this that is very painful. I was talking with a friend on his podcast. He interviewed me about community living. And like, there's a lot of people I go to music festivals at Sonic Bloom in 2014. I was playing didgeridoo there and doing the sound thing. And I remember going to a workshop and the woman was saying, okay, these are, how do we get a community? Let's look at the creative vision board. Like what would that look like? Like land and all this stuff. And it reminds me of also going to Burning Man. I remember a friend came up and he was talking to another friend of mine saying, yeah, it's like when the revolution happens, who will take out the trash? Who will take out the trash? It's like, who's going to do the real difficult work? This is the meditation I think that we need to really comprehend. Do you act, You want to see a better world. You want to have a more harmonious world with nature, with community, with friends. But are you willing to put in the sacrifice and the work to see it happen? And then not only that, what is the way to do so? Because there's many visions of community. There's many methods of acting. There's many intentional ways of relating. How is it best to do this? These are very tricky things to understand. There's, there's no like easy answer to that question. But... One of the first things I can say is, you know, just learning to spend time with people and work together with people on collective projects, you understand how difficult it is. And then there's just a moment where you just wonder, why am I doing this in the first place? And I sh and one of the wonderful teachings of the initiatic tradition 
is that two years of living in a community is 20 years of, of self-growth, which is true because you're, you're consistently being held up to the mirror of another person, both your projection on them and their projection on you. You're being confronted with your desire system and how congruent it is with the dominant ideology of the community. You're being confronted with how you utilize your time, how much you're giving, how much you're taking, your selfishness, your bad attitude, the aspects of yourself that have not grown up, your patience with others, your reactionary. Just pay attention to your reactions. Like, why is this person triggering me just so much? What is it about this person that just drives me crazy? Why am I dealing with that person? And then more importantly, what is it about me inside of me that is happening? That that person is just activating. Because at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with them. Because somebody else goes up to that person and they're just like, oh, hey, how you doing? But then you come up to that person and it's like, ooh. So is it in that person or is it in you? This is one of the things Vipassana really helped me understand experientially is that the negativity almost virtually always that arises within us when it comes to relationships you have to look at yourself as to why that's there you can't blame other people no one put that in me and this is a constant eternal meditation i've seen people of all different levels and ages and titles and realizations and heard stories about others do this nonstop of getting caught up in this reaction of disrupting the peace of something painful seizing their awareness and their mindfulness and attacking what does not need to be attacked attacking the mirror so to speak you know and then breaking the mirror and then getting stabbed by the glass and then getting blood all over the place and then everyone else has to go clean it up and then they're yelling about something it's like whoa okay can we just maybe next time we don't punch the mirror <laughs> so learning to be peaceful and our teacher maestro well likes to say the practice begins and ends with peace so the most important aspect of the practice is peace because we can do all the yoga postures and you know, do all the esoteric rituals and ceremonies and experience the most intense environments. But if we cannot cultivate peace within ourselves, of what use is any of that stuff? And it's fascinating, too, because if peace is the fundamental, if peace is not just the end game and the goal, but the way, peace is the way, the peace is the way to peace, you could say. Hmm. All right. So peace is the way to peace. If this is the case then does it matter so much what one does? And this is an interesting discussion that I've had many times about. We can get really caught up in all kinds of traditions and techniques and disciplines and this and that, but at the end of the day, can you keep peace within yourself? That's the real practice. In fact, that might be the only practice. Can you keep peace inside of yourself and allow that to emanate? And I remember hearing 
you know, some story about that. So there's like a sage in India. It's like, how to become a sage? Well, he just made clay pots. He never had a guru, never had a teacher, never had any yoga. He just made pots. He lived on a farm, but he became widely recognized as a sage. Well, how is that? Sometimes the thing it is that simple. Simplicity. Keeping peace within yourself. You know, what are the steps towards peace? This becomes an interesting thing. Because sometimes, like, peace seems like a simple thing, but then, like, all of a sudden, whoa, well, it's not that simple. <laughs> because we immediately become in contact with people that just want to shake that. They want to make us feel unpeaceful. Their, their MO is not to be peaceful and compassionate. Okay, but those people are important. You can't just necessarily block those people out of our lives. You can't just block out things in life. I mean, it's good to, to be selective and to use discernment. Of course, we don't eat toxic food. Well, if you're in America, you do. But if you live, you know, ideally speaking, you don't want to eat toxic food. At the same time, to get rid of a virus, one takes a vaccine, which essentially is exposing yourself to the virus. So we have to learn to expose ourselves to situations and things that we don't want to come in contact with just for the practice of testing to see how much we are capable of keeping peace in turmoil, difficult circumstances. And to understand what it is and what it means to... Be in a place of non-reactivity. The card for today, which I didn't start with because I couldn't remember what it was, because <laughs> I had lost it because it's later in the day than earlier, was healing. And that's what this meditation, this podcast, is bringing me to. And this is an important thing that I want to share too, is that for, you know, these podcasts are meditations to listen to the teaching, the teachings, or just to listen to anyone in general, regardless of how insane they are, or crazy, or difficult, or angry, is a meditation. Life is a meditation. Every moment is a meditation. How are you orienting yourself towards meditation? What is your focus on? The intention of these podcasts is not teaching a meditative technique, but to share insights of meditation in action, to share meditation of, of life. These are the guideposts that have served me in, as I swim through the cosmic sea of the universe. And these are the things that have been passed to me by different teachers and lineages and uh, elders and perspectives and things I've read and listened to. And this is what guides me. And I've found them to be extremely helpful. And so the healing card says, It is a time when the deeply buried wounds of the past are coming to the surface, ready and available to be healed. The figure in this card is naked, vulnerable, open to the loving touch of existence. The aura around his body is full of light, and the quality of relaxation, caring, and love that surrounds him is dissolving his struggle and suffering. Lotuses of light appear on his physical body and around the subtle energy bodies that healers say surround each of us. In each of these subtle layers appears a healing crystal or pattern. This is on the image of the card. 
When we are under the healing influence of the king of water, we are no longer hiding from ourselves or others. In this attitude of openness and acceptance, we can be healed and help others also to be healthy and whole. You carry your wound. With the ego, your whole being is a wound, and you carry it around. Nobody is interested in hurting you. Nobody is positively waiting to hurt you. Everybody is engaged in safeguarding his own wound, who has the energy. But still, it happens because you're so ready to be wounded, so ready just waiting on the brink for anything. So, I think that this card is... I always love when I get this card. I always feel a sense of like, ah, wonderful. Uh, oh, I didn't finish the card. Let me finish reading and This is why I love it. I'm just going to say it and see the thing here. So, you cannot touch a man of Tao. Why? Because... There is no one to be touched. There is no wound. He is healthy, healed, whole. This word whole is beautiful. The word heal comes from the whole, and the word holy also comes from the whole. He is whole, healed, holy. Be aware of your wound. Don't help it to grow. Let it be healed, and it will be healed only when you move to the roots. The less the head, the more the wound will heal. With no head, there is no wound. Live a headless life. Move as a total being and accept things. Just for 24 hours, try it. Total acceptance. Whatsoever happens. Someone insults you, accept it. Don't react. And see what happens. Suddenly, you will feel an energy flowing in you that you've not felt before. So that's the part that I was looking for in the card. And that's the part that I like the most here. Whatever happens, someone insults you, accept it. Don't react and see what happens. It's a powerful thing, and it's funny that I'm talking about non-reactivity, and lo and behold, there's the card offering the practice of non-reactivity to us for the day. And this is, this, is the, this is the path, right? This is what we have to do, is we have to expose ourselves to those triggers, to those environmental stimulus things that we don't really want to deal with, and that's the only way we're going to heal the thing. So... This is why the community is difficult work because you're exposing yourself to so much and constantly there's a sense where you lose control. And this is probably the way out of a lot of our obstacles as modern people is putting ourselves in situations where we cannot control. That's a headless way to live. You can't control it. You just have to instinctually, intuitively tap into it because the intellect can't wrap its head around it when there's 45 people and 85 committees and 95 meetings and 7,000 projects happening every four days there's only so much your mind is really going to be able to do even if you're at a high level of intellectual mastery and organization it's just a moment you're going to be going my god I'm overwhelmed and through that period of overwhelming there's an erosion of the hardness of the stone of the mind to fix a linear way okay and you're brought more into like the simple gentleness of the heart. Okay. <laughs> this is overwhelming. But there's something here that is experiencing a release from that overwhelming. So a wonderful practice that I've put into... I haven't done it in like a year, but it's to keep silence for, you know, and be in very social situations where you say, I'm taking a period of silence. This is a wonderful and very powerful practice. It's like fasting. Uh, 
to keep silence just in ordinary social environments, especially in a communal situation with lots of people, is a very interesting experience. This is a very psychedelic experience, if you ask me, because what happens is, like, so much comes to the surface, like, a lot. And not, like, necessarily bad stuff, but just, like, oh, I'm excited. I want to share this. Someone said something funny. I would like to share something. And you don't. And then you all of a sudden what happens is, like, the the structures of the ego, like, the card is taking that protect like the parts of you that are the wound the vulnerable parts they those structures aren't being reinforced by social interaction you know and there's something about that that is like whoa it's like taking off your armor and there's an initiatic story about a knight in armor i don't recall the whole essence of the story or the title of it but the essence of it is chooses not to speak and the armor slowly falls off and you know fear arises because what's going to be there but then the life juice of the person the nectar and that's what this card is talking about here in the osho deck this idea of the end suddenly you will feel an energy flowing and you have not felt before when you don't react like how do we get the armor off because the armor is a very fascinating thing right because it's like it makes us feel strong sometimes it makes us feel empowered you ever watch two really macho guys get at it? They're like, you know, it's like, my armor. <laughs> this is my armor. Like, it really, like, you know, uh, what kind of animals do that when they come at each other? The two males fighting over the... I know Komodo dragons do it. It's very entertaining. <laughs> but it's like, they, and they try to... The Komodo dragon, I used to love watching them as kids They uh, on the video... They puff up. They make themselves really big and they hiss. They get really loud. It's like, look at how I create my armor. But what what is underneath all that is this very, you know, there's this part that's been like, is afraid, that's been hurt. It's not to say fundamentally we're weak because it's not. But I think in every human being, especially one that engages in that kind of behavior, there is something that needs to be resolved. And for those of us living in modern culture, most of us have a deep thing that we need to be resolved, you know, just as the inner and the outer are not separate as above, so below, you know, the outer environment. The pollution of the outer environment is a reflection of the inner pollution that we have so deeply accumulated. And I, it's a lot of work to get it all out. And you might never, ever get it out. And that might even be a good thing in the long run because it keeps you in the spirit passion of of illusion even though nirvana they say is to extinguish the passions who knows i don't know i just like to talk and i like to share what my thoughts are on these things this is a meditation it's not an answer to your life all i know is that this meditation and this talk brings peace to me and it ends with peace so i do it <laughs> so my prayer for this meditation and podcast is for you to receive peace from it on some level understanding that no one knows what's going on but there are lots of wonderful guideposts that help us out of all kinds of very tricky situations so letting go of our armor and finding you know what's underneath that is this sense of like whoa I've been trying to hide this pain. I've been hiding it behind a personality. That's what happens when you keep silence in the big social environment. You're like, wow. So afraid of being judged. Been afraid of not being cool. Been afraid of not being tough enough. Been afraid of not being beautiful enough. Been afraid of not being charismatic enough. Been afraid of not being accepted. Being weird, being different, being a freak. (laughs) 
And uh, I think that this is a very wonderful thing to be confronted with. This has been something I've I've been confronting in myself for a long time now. Just like, you know, what is it that? What I mean by that is a sense of like dissonance with people, and that's ultimately you know my relations, or rather my struggle with my relations, has what led me deeply into this path. Uh, and that's a really beautiful thing to meditate on because. There's been many moments where I've just been like, I wish that my relationships with people could be a little more graceful in the direction that I want them to be and not be so jarring in the way that they are. And they've always been jarring for me. It's just been something. But I would also open up to the possibility that this is the case for most of us who are being truthful with themselves, is that relationships are jarring and difficult and more to teach us about compassion than they are anything else. And there's something though beautiful about it because it keeps you awake. When there's disharmony, you definitely start to wake up. It's when everything is la-di-da that you just can fall into a total sleepiness about what is happening in life and what needs to be done for you why were you here oh i don't know everything's just chill relaxed and that's good we don't want to come too much in the opposite way we're middle way people remember we're not into like extremes but if you're too relaxed in this day and age that might be an indication that something needs to get a little stirred up because this is unfortunately not an era that's necessarily calling for people to just be sleepy and relaxed. To be a real healer in this era, I've heard it said, you know, you need to really like, you need to really bring the healing towards yourself. You need to step out of the comfort zone. The comfort zone is what keeps us sick. You know, to be keep silence, that's extremely uncomfortable. But to feel that discomfort can lead us into a place where there's a resolution to something that talk therapy might take us 30, 50 lifetimes <laughs> to accomplish. Other things can be rooted out very quickly. So, and this practice of silence is not something that needs to even be taken to an extreme, just for instance, I heard a really beautiful thing about Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist teacher from Vietnam. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for activism during the Vietnam War. He lives currently in France. There's actually a center close by to my house here in upstate New York. And always coming back to the breath and utilizing the sounds and the natural environment as a tool to bring you into this place of awakening. To bring you into a place of awareness of the breath of the body. So he says this wonderful thing, whenever the phone rings, don't answer it. Use it as, a, as like a meditation bell. And then on the second ring, meditate, and now you're going to answer the phone with compassion towards the person. Love and kindness. <laughs>
<laughs> you know, that simple things like that can become very, very powerful tools that catalyze you into something that who knows where it takes you. And I think it's these little small things that really differentiate the people who become someone like Thich Nhat Hanh versus someone that just took a meditation class or something like that. How do you bring this meditation into everyday circumstances, into every moment of your waking life? How do you not lower your focus and your mindfulness? But at the same time, how do you continue to participate as a human being? Because that's what's being asked of us is to engage fully in the human world and to do so with a lot of patience with ourselves and others and with a level of non-reactivity. And this is why Christ says, I'm sending you out into the world like lambs among wolves, sheep among wolves. I don't remember the specific quote, but it's quite like that. The idea that we are in a place of that vulnerability. We've been, we're stripping away the armor. That is a frightening thing to walk out into the world and someone's like, yeah, I'm going to get me a gun and shoot all these things and get drunk and blah, blah, blah. I, I went to high school in Virginia, forgive me. <laughs> I'm friends with a lot of people like that. I don't have any judgment towards that. I just love that accent. <laughs> but my point being that when you go out into the world, you're carrying like all this armor and you're carrying... There's an attitude of aggression that you have to confront when you're dropping your armor, let's put it that way. And then how do you not put the armor back up? I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't say, I'm going to get back at you for this. He said, forgive them, I know not what they do. So that's that's a powerful thing right there, to not put up armor even when you're being stabbed and crucified. That's a challenging perspective. When Gandhi was shot, you just said, Ram, Ram, Ram. He said, God, God, God. Like the meditation of the person was oriented towards the divine at all moments. And walking, and the whole story of Gandhi, I mean, it's like the person's like a living Christ where voluntarily getting the crap kicked out of him multiple times to awaken other people to their humanity. You could talk about Gandhi forever. But the perfect example of being a lamb among wolves but this is this is this is what it means i think to come back to the beginning of this podcast is like it means to be a teacher in this era and how to shake things up because we might be used to this idea of of like the renegade hero we're used to like the avengers movies that's what that's like the mythology of our culture right now in a lot of ways the avengers movies who doesn't love the avengers movies i mean come on they're great but when they go out it's violence right they're put i mean tony stark puts on a bunch of metal armor right this is this and you know we could we could try to uh we could just dissect the character of Iron Man, how we could say perhaps this is like a meditation of the ego and all these things intentionally because obviously Stan Lee was a fairly awake person. But ultimately what I'm getting at here is that we have this narrative mythology built up in this culture around you know violence to overcome things, aggression or overpowering things. That's the way to to reach our goal. You know, that's the, the most dominant sport, the most dominant country, the dominant religion 
the dominant language, the dominant economy. <laughs> this kind of mentality is, is uh, it spills into, I think, spiritual practice on a certain way. I can meditate the longest. I can do the, hold a yoga posture for longer. I can eat 5,000 buttons of peyote. I can sit in the sweat lodge for nine years. <laughs> Whatever, all right? Uh, it doesn't matter, but we're getting at this idea that there's this... The real practice is one of, of like a lot of gentleness. Gentleness. And if you're not oriented in that way, there's nothing wrong with you. I'm not really oriented in that way. I'm gentle with people and people's emotions, but I'm kind of like a bull in a china shop in a lot of ways. <laughs> I have a tendency to, to just mess things up and like disrupt silence and do all. I'm just, you know, I'm not always the most gracious person. <laughs> so the gentleness that we're talking about here is not always the gentleness we got to we have to go deeper into the word of like what does it mean to be gentle like we're not so much like your action because a martial artist can be a phenomenally graceful and, and gentle person and knock an opponent out or you know deliver a blow that to let's just say a not another human being whatever their target is and you know have it be devastating in terms of what that would mean. My point being that they might not necessarily be in actual combat with a human being, but and, but they have the capacity to deliver a devastating blow. But they're in alignment with this gentleness. And this, I think, is wonderful thing about martial arts practice that I'm not experientially familiar with, but I have an understanding, at, at least on some level, from having played sports, contact sports my entire life, not entire life, uh, for the first age seven to age 20 age 20 and uh there's a moment like a flow that occurs you know in these realms where their aggression and other emotions arise but it's not the person that's like the most aggressive or the most angry or the most powerful it's the person that's in that flow with of in alignment with that Tao Taoist type energy and this is what I think the healing card here is speaking to, which is suddenly you will feel an energy flowing and you have not flowed before, not felt before. And this is what the mar martial artist has done, is they've trained themselves through this non-reactive practice, this meditation, this yogic way of, of movement, of establishing a union within themselves, an opening and an awareness within themselves. And they're able to step into that place of tremendous grace and power. And they move in a very almost there's like a it's like a dance on a certain level if you watch certain kung fu. Depends on what they're doing, of course, but there's it, there's a graciousness to it, right? And then there's this power that comes through. So it's an interesting thing because you could perhaps make the argument that the Avengers are sort of like the kung fu people. I don't know if you want to make that argument, you could go right ahead. <laughs> But I think that what we're trying to get at here is that the martial artist is someone that doesn't have enemies. Especially like with Kung Fu, it's rooted in a Buddhist perspective. It's, there's no enemies. The, the martial artist is stepping into a place of openness and they're learning to use energy in a, a certain way. You think about the martial artist in a the meditation, they're not meditating on their enemies, they're meditating on compassion. 
compassion, suffer with, they're not trying to inflict pain on their enemies. That's what you know, the Avengers have this sort of, there's good and bad guys. But the martial artist is more of a dance. They're monks. Shaolin monk. They're a monk. They're renunciate. What does a renunciate have to fight? What are you fighting as a renunciate? I renounce myself. <laughs> Who are you fight? Why are you fighting? What is there to fight, right? You know. But you know, but to utilize on a certain level, this is something that I I was always gravitated towards, for whatever reason. This idea of the left hand path. I don't know if I've ever shared this in the podcast, but when I was living in Nepal, I was living with a Tibetan family as a student. A friend of mine uh, on the program, uh, in he was also living with the Tibetan family. We were living in the area of Bodhanat, which is a Tibetan Buddhist colony in Kathmandu, Nepal. Very cool place. And my friend John <laughs> told me that his uh, homestay brother was a yogi. And he was sharing with him he's part of the left-hand path, meaning you sort of do the opposite that you're supposed to do. You do the antithesis to everything that you would think you do. So he does stuff like drinks his own urine and feces and would sleep in graveyards and other places that no one wants to go. And what we what we're getting at here is that you can utilize life and aspects of life that are not things you want to get involved in fighting and drinking your own urine whoa that sounds terrible but by getting involved in those things as a conscious person without armor dropping the game as a renunciate you have the capacity to step into utilizing it as a tool for your awakening and I don't recommend you go drink your own urine for the record. I don't have any experience with that practice. When I say I was attracted to left-hand path, I just like the idea of how wacky it is. <laughs> My mind is oriented in that way naturally. I like things that are bizarre and strange. I've, I've never really been one for the ordinary. So uh, this is the idea that we can use what's happening in and around our life as a meditative tool for us to awaken. And even something like violence or something that would just appear totally you know, rank, I don't know what the adjective is to describe it, can also fit into that category. So when we go out into the world, it becomes very important that we learn to take down this armor, embrace this state of silence and stillness as much as we can, and... As the card says, live a headless life, move as a total being, and accept things. Accept things. Acceptance. Acceptance of the present moment of what's happening. And open yourself to the possibilities of what the present moment has to offer. The creative potential of the moment and what's unfolding. And learning to subside our reactionary tendencies to people places and things especially the ones that have triggered us and this is why communal living is highly recommended because we're constantly in environments we don't have control over when you have control things can get really fixed when you have control they're naturally moving you into a place where you have to be a little more spontaneous in creativity. and creativity and spontaneity becomes like the true medicine at the end of the day more than anything i think 
people say laughter is best medicine. Yeah, but you know what? There's a lot of laughter that's just like fake laughter. <laughs> Maybe we just argue that's not really laughter. I don't know. But spontaneity is really the real medicine. That that not the it's not the real medicine, but I, that's figure of speech. Point is, it's really just it's a it's a medicine that I think is at the core of all medicines which is why those medicines are recognized laughter plants spiritual practices art music athletics fasting what it really is is the spontaneity spontaneity is really the key more than anything because i'm i'm a musician for instance and i play many different instruments uh i'm not formally trained in music I beatbox, I sing. I like to beatbox, so there's my beatboxing. <laughs> and uh, those techniques of music are awesome, but there's moments where all of a sudden you're just like, this feels totally dead to me. I'm just singing the same song. I'm doing the same technique. I'm doing the same this, doing the same that. And it becomes dull. Like, for instance, I have a hong drum. I have an original hung drum. I somehow got it just by the serendipity of the universe. Friend had it. And I used to play it all the time. And I always used to like make up all these crazy songs with it that were like total spontaneous flow. Just like I'd, I would just get into like a freestyle rap almost with them. And I would use the hand pan as a way to like flip it from rapping to singing and stuff like that. And then there was a moment where all of a sudden I just kind of stopped doing it. Not totally, but just it started to become really static. It became this very fixed, like, rigid thing. And it was funny because it was originally this extraordinarily spontaneous creative thing, and all of a sudden now it's very fixed. And the fixation of everything stagnated all the energy. It blocked everything. It became an armor itself. It's like, oh, if I do this, I'll generate that reaction, and that experience of things will arise in the field of whoever is listening to this and myself. And then what I found over time was, like, it just became repetitive, the repetition, the fixation of it, like you lose the nectar and like the essence and the isness of life and the unpredictability. And this is a big reason why I love doing these podcasts because they connect me to the spontaneity of life, which is a medicine, the spontaneity. I don't plan this. I think I said in the beginning, it's a stream of consciousness. I don't know what I'm going to say next. It just flows out. It's just kind of happening. And I'm just sort of watching it and participating in it and taking amusement and enjoy but the idea here is that people like to take drugs because they shake them up out of their fixed way of uh experiencing life and whether the drug is you know negative like alcohol or heroin or something or you know that has a positive quality to it like mushrooms or something whatever you want to call it it doesn't matter and also just to share like the perspective like you're calling like mushrooms drugs that's interesting like okay but you know drugs are medicines medicines are drugs you go to the drugstore to get medicine so the connotation of the word drug has been hijacked by the, the DEA for a negative way. You know, everything everything you eat is a drug so it affects you. If you fast for 10 days and then you eat 15 bananas or something, you're gonna, you'll are gonna you see what I mean. It's a drug. <laughs> Not a very powerful one at the end of the day, but it has an effect, especially when used in the right discipline like fasting. All right, so spontaneity is an important, important, important thing to really reflect on. That's really what life responds to spontaneity and that's really what we're looking for is to be in a place of spontaneous action and spiritual disciplines can orient us out of the fixed way of relating to things but then it's funny too because on some level spiritual 
you know, practice or teaching or teacher or whatever becomes a trap in itself because it, it be, you have an established routine with it. There's, there's, uh, like there's something there that's, it's limiting your perspective. It's limiting your action. It's limiting your expression. So there's a moment where you just have to break out of it. So this is a, this is why the left-hand path might even be a beneficial thing. But also, let's look at what it's like the left-hand path for us in this culture, you know. Or maybe not in the left-hand path. What's like the let's say let's say let's the middle between the right and the left because maybe we don't want to go as extreme as <laughs> what the Tibetan yogis do. But maybe there's something like people are like, "Oh, I'm going to my meditation class." And you go to the med- and you're like, "Yeah, me too." And they're like, "Oh, where do you guys you're at?" And you're like, "I go to mine in the middle of Times Square." <laughs> <laughs> like that's a good way to look at it like oh yeah i i do my meditation class on the subway like let's think creatively outside of the box as to how we can uh rewire ourselves to be more spontaneous and not approach life on an automatic plane this is what makes us feel young and happy and innocent and joyful and makes a lot of laughter and things like this so this is what makes us feel alive because that's what we're looking for right it's one of the beautiful things by joseph campbell it's us we're not looking so much for the meaning to life what we're experiencing is the ex- we're searching for is the experience of rapture not the meaning of life but the experience of rapture of life both caught up in the simultaneous bliss and the pain of the of the whole thing and being like whoa life I think this is what we're all born into. I mean, you're born into the world screaming. As Cornel West says, you're born in between, you know, the sexual center and the, <laughs> what does he say? I can't recall it. You know, the place where you go to the bathroom. It's like, you're not, it's, you're not born in a bunch of, there's no stork coming to deliver you. Let's put it, you're not like smiling, like, hey, how you doing? The stork brought me. <laughs> it isn't like that it's messy it's like whoa someone's screaming while you're screaming and then all of a sudden it's <gasps> like you know the ecstasy of the whole thing and the emotional release like that's life that's we're looking for that but that also can be frightening and it has to be frightening because we're so caught up in these like comfort zone barrier armor is the word keep coming back to these shields the things that push us away the discomfort and just holds on to clings to safety and security and what's known and we need to throw ourselves in to the circumstances and situations that like you know they shake us up so if you want to be shaken up if you want to shake up the world then you got to be shaken up like, that's how I understand it. And that's why I choose to live in a community. I want to corrupt the youth and shake up the world. I have, I've, I confess. You know. <laughs> uh, but the thing that's funny is, like, you know, corrupted from whose perspective? And this is why we're coming back to this idea, right? Like, you know, the guy who flew the plane in the Twin Towers, he thought he was doing a good thing. Regardless of it, who, who it actually was that did it, he thought he was doing a good thing. He was following orders based off of what the authority told him to do that he supported. So what I'm getting at here is that we're saying that you need to you need to be shaken up and and understand that if you want to corrupt the youth, right? But corrupt it from whose perspective? Because there's the society mainstream perspective that like being a soldier is like a 
admirable position. Go out and murder other people, especially if they're dark-skinned and poor. Okay, like, that's a... That's that's healthy. That's well-adjusted. That's... That's... Um, valiant behavior, whatever you want to call it. If being peaceful and interrupting that is corrupting, then I am extremely corrupt. So... We have to be willing to challenge things. We have to be willing to step outside of the norm. We have to be difficult with things when the thing has become disharmonious. And this teacher is teaching my Sherman well gave me. It's like sometimes the harmonious thing to do is be disruptive. It's a beautiful teaching. So the idea here is not an automatic. You're not like automatically just disruptive of everything. Pick and choose your battles too because maybe... That isn't right, what's happening. But maybe that's not really your battle. Like, I personally don't feel in my action at this time, at this moment, that I need to go, like, be an anti-war protester and, like, put myself on the line for that. That's not really what I see as the calling for myself, nor as the highest service I can offer to the world. At the same time, I would do it if it was what I felt was necessary from within, and this is a meditation about picking and choosing your battles because maybe there's something for you to do that's more empowering for you and the world and more in alignment with your skills and your gifts and your knowledge and your experiences and understanding that like we all have a mission on this earth to awaken and awaken others. And at this time, I mean, just you know, not, not to get all like Hollywood, but it never does it ever seem more relevant than this moment. Who knows? We've only been alive for this moment. Maybe 20 moments ago it was worse. But the the thing to reflect on here is like that there's something calling us. And that's why you're listening to this. There's something calling you. You wouldn't be you wouldn't be listening to this if listening to Fox News was fulfilling you. And maybe you listen to this and you listen to Fox News. I don't know, whatever. But the point being, which is cool, I don't care. Listen to whatever the hell you want to listen to. But my point is that like, maybe there was something that you... There's there, like the there's something like in the Matrix. It's like, you know, it's like a splinter. It's in your mind. Like there's something wrong with the way the world is. Are we not be fed up with this enough yet? There's something about us that we need to activate inside of ourselves. There's something within you that's unique to you that can plug into the collective to help be a catalyst for transformation and change but it requires you going through some sort of turmoil and gauntlet to activate it because it's frightening to step outside of the boundaries it's frightening to speak up it's frightening to be the person that's saying i'm here to corrupt the youth even as i say that on my podcast i'm aware like i represent things like i'm not just an isolated individual i'm part of a community i represent a community and a teacher and a lineage and the teachers who came before and these things and like to pay attention Aho Matakuyasana and Lakota to all of our relations to pay attention to what we're representing and who we're representing this is an important medicine for us to understand if we just go operating acting acting as an absolute self out into the world we can do what Hitler did right I'm the one who knows <laughs> I'm the one who will save the whatever it's like you can get an 
that's an extreme, the most extreme, but like you can get into total delusion about what it is in a uh, toxicity of your goal. Like it can be polluted into something and twisted into something that it was not intended to be for. I was talking about Hitler recently. I, I was The guy wanted to be an artist. I mean, just think about that. He went from being a failure as an artist to being a mass murderer and dictator and like i made a joke about on the previous on a previous podcast idea of like you know it's easier for him to take over the world than paint a picture of a goose i think i got that from stephen pressfield stole that from him i sometimes steal things like that <laughs> but the point is like you know that's funny but then there's also this thing about like who knows what if the guy had become an artist maybe he would have become someone like alex gray or something like that you know maybe he would have become become who knows what his art, or like Salvador Dali, right? Who knows what his art would have become more relevant in the time period, Dali, than Alex Gray? Because it's like he was obviously going to transform the world. Was he going to do it through a destructive or a creative principle? He wanted to do it creatively, but it didn't work out. But who knows how he had the discipline to sit through it and the misery and the failure. Maybe there would have been something that would have sparked in the universe for him to like do that. At the same time, the universe put him in that role for some reason. Who the heck knows why? We have compassion for this situation. But what I'm what I want, I want to offer here is this idea that like we can transform what's happening with us and we have to in order to step into the person we're supposed to be. And like there's another thing I like by Joseph Campbell. We have to be willing to give up the life we have so as to live the life we were meant to. And, like, that's a powerful thing. Like, that's true renunciation right there. And, like, that requires, like, a fierce determination. That requires, like, a fierceness in how you approach life and the situations that unfold around you. You have to understand that you have to be willing to give up a lot of stuff. And it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful and uncomfortable and embarrassing and humiliating and frightening and just challenging in all kinds of ways. But this is what's going to allow you to activate your full potential for the benefit of us without having gone through for myself tremendous emotional and mental turmoil and pain like all kinds of crazy stuff that like I don't even feel like getting into but just like you know my path to this moment has just been one of like going through hell and I don't mean like you know right now I'm going through hell but I'm saying that like I've gone through hell to be at this place like <laughs> I, the the idea of the hell realm in the Tibetan Buddhist iconography of, of this state of consciousness of the hell realm of like, you know, there's burning and there's torturing and there's, you know, all kinds of pain. Like this this is something I can personally say I have familiarity with, with, with an inner perspective and experience relative to my own self. You know, for other people it might be have been infinitely worse. And there's something that Viktor Frankl, who spent time in Auschwitz, I don't know how long he was in Auschwitz for. There's some controversy about that, that he was there for a day, he was there for a long time, who knows, whatever. He said something, regardless, just to even have been Jewish at that time period in, in Poland, it doesn't matter. He did go there, even if it was just for a brief moment. But his perspective about it, it says that suffering is like gas. doesn't matter how little or how much is in the room, it's affecting things. That's not a direct quote. It's kind of my interpretation, but it's this idea that it's like, it's even the tiny little pebble in your shoe was going to wear you out. 
So this is an important thing for us to contextualize what's happening to us when we go through these processes like dark night of the soul or awakening into something that, you know, authenticity of who we are and what we're supposed to be doing on this earth is to understand that your suffering is valid, right? It's valid. It matters. It's not just, oh, your first class or first world problems. As a side note, I saw a funny meme one time. It said second world problems, and it was a guy with a USSR hat and black and white and a bottle of vodka, and he said, I want to get drunk, but I'm already drunk. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Anyway, I, I having a sense of humor to me is, is the most enlightening aspect of life. So the point being that I want to get at, though, is like we we need to understand that our suffering it has its place and just because it's not the equivalency of someone else's suffering doesn't invalidate ours at the same time it's there's nothing about this like comparison is not very helpful tool on the path and it tends to delude and confuse us more than anything else because first of all we have no idea what it's like to be anybody else we just just we never will know there's no sense so you're judging your insides by someone else's outsides and of what helpful use is that it just confuses you and can oftentimes delude you into thinking you're either uh, a master or a failure and you might be on the opposite end of the spectrum or different ends at different times so we need to constantly contextualize our suffering why is this happening why am i experiencing this is it because i'm too comfortable or have i fallen off the trajectory that i was supposed to take was i supposed to do something was i supposed to awaken and be a voice a visionary a creative force a collaborator or have I just become complacent because complacency and acceptance are not the same thing acceptance I feel has a lot to do with you can accept things and still change them when I'm making music I accept this is my musical capacity but at the same time I strive to improve upon it when it comes to complacency, it's like, oh, okay, this is my musical capacity and I'm just going to leave it as it is. This is the best that I can do. For the record, there's been many things musically I've become complacent on. <laughs> but, you know, it's this, this is what we need to be constantly challenging ourselves. And this comes back to, once again, the wonderful thing about community. The community gets us outside of our complacent boundaries. Community gets us to, okay, come help out with this. Come do that. I don't want to. Too bad. And then also, I loved this one teaching that Maestro Manuel gave recently. <laughs> he said that, you know, sometimes you just need to sit on the couch and do nothing at all. Just sit on the couch. And if someone comes up to you and tells you that you're not doing anything, you go, so what? I'm enjoying my couch. <laughs> and he says, you know, if like, if you never take time, just enjoy the couch. What's the point of having it? What was the point of buying it? 
we're just being making humor around it but this is funny because this is someone that's inspired myself and other students to push themselves to beyond limits i can't even begin to explain i didn't realize you could do that with yourself you know sleep for days and do all kinds of crazy things and you know a force of transformation and and empowerment in his own life and other people and this idea of like oh yeah sometimes you just sit on the couch just like yeah forget about it and there's a wonderful story by hudson houston smith who was uh, a psychedelic researcher with Ram Dass and Timothy Leary at Harvard and Professor Divinity, I think is what you call it. But he you know, studied comparative religions all over the world. And he had a story about when he was with a Zen Buddhist master. And like, you know, Zen Buddhism, it's just, it's hardcore. It's like you're meditating many hours a day. They hit you with a stick. You're just like in this, it's, it's intense from all accounts of it, I understand it stripped down to the core it's bare bones hardcore is the right word or zen buddhism in my opinion and he's talking about he's talking to zen buddhist master and he's there for a retreat for a long time several months i think and then he winds up about to leave and the guy goes oh i want to show you something the zen master come to my office he takes him in there and he's like oh this is where i i drink beer and i watch tv (laughs) this is where i drink beer and i watch sumo wrestling he says And I think that's hilarious. It's like this idea that. Yeah, you need to just get out of your comfort zone. But then maybe you're too comfortable in that and outside of your comfort zone. Maybe the most uncomfortable thing for you to do is to stay home and relax. And that's personally what I found COVID has shown me. I don't like to stay home and relax. (laughs) That's the most anxiety-producing thing I could ever think of. Just sit around and do nothing. <laughs> but this is this is also like the medicine of this moment in time. Can you just be as you are for a period? Even if you've already exited your quarantine, there was a moment where you couldn't and you had to just be where you were. And on some level, you still do because a lot of interactions have been limited. And yeah, this is... And, and it, it's counterintuitive. Like, you know, Chognam Trungpa said that what Western people need to do is they really just need to sit and meditate. They just need to sit. It isn't like they need to, like, physically remain still. That's what Western people really need, he offered. And it's it's a funny paradoxical thing. Maybe paradox is not the right word, but it's not what you would think it would be because the idea of, like, oh, sit around and do nothing, right? Oh. That's what like that's what like people do when they watch TV. You're like lazy. You're like sitting, do nothing. You're like chill, relaxing. You either perceive it as relaxing, or you perceive it as what someone who's lazy is doing, sluggish. You're sleeping, hanging in bed all day. You're just being like whatever, this kind of thing. But then what happens is when you start to just okay, let's sit and do nothing. Oh, difficult very difficult painful <laughs> profound confrontation with reality <laughs> i didn't think sitting around doing nothing was going to be so damn hard <laughs> the first time i was talking on my friend jeremy's podcast yesterday with him i was saying the first time i went to do vipassana 10 minutes as long as i could sit still and cross-legged I'm just sitting there doing nothing, but just to sit there was excruciatingly, agonizingly painful. By the end of it, I could sit still for 40 minutes. Nowadays, sitting for an hour is great. I'm able to do it comfortably, you know. That was 10 years ago that I learned Vipassana. 
So it's a funny thing. Just doing nothing is the most difficult thing. Of course, you're not doing nothing. You're becoming present with what's happening inside you. The word nothing is like a very confusing word in so many ways. Listen to Robert Thurman talk about nothing if you want to understand it more clearly. He articulates it better than I ever could. But in essence, nothing cannot come from something. And if there's one thing we can agree upon, it is that there is something in front of us. We are something. There is something. So where is the nothing? Nothing cannot come from something. Huh. Nothing itself is something. Nothing is a something. Oh. Word games. Anyways, come back to the heart if you're getting confused. You'll understand what I'm trying to articulate. But the uh, this idea like that, just being with oneself as you are, this is what the vision quest is for. Confine yourself and sit in this tiny little spot and don't move. Don't talk to anybody. Don't eat anything. Don't drink anything. If you need something, we'll bring it to you. We might not bring it to you even if you think you need it. Because <laughs> what you really need to do is just come to terms with your needs and let go of them and be with yourself as you are without all your armor and all your games and all of your complexes and your problems and your attitude and your arrogant crap and all this stuff, you just need to sit there. I'm talking to myself right now. So. <laughs> it's difficult to just be, to just be. You know, I remember like you see, like you read The Power of Now or Be Here Now. Like, oh, whoa, just got to be in the present moment. Who, who knew it was so easy? Yeah, but who knew that's actually extremely difficult? It's like lifting weights. Like you see Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, how do you look? How do you get like that? Oh, you just lift. You just lift these things. You put. You push some stuff around. That's it. You lift it up. Like, oh, I'll do that. And you start doing it. Like, damn, this is hard. <laughs> this is not easy. Lifting weights is is not complicated, but it's not easy. It's not like just eh, okay. I mean, for some people, certain things come easier than others, undoubtedly so. But ultimately, applied practice leads to mastery of things and. You only fail, you will fail more times than you try. That's inevitable, the situation. So coming into a place where we can just be with ourselves and be confronting ourselves with that angst about arranging things. And this is, I think, a wonderful teaching I heard from Ram Dass. It's like we approach life we're always trying to arrange the furniture of the prison cell and perhaps it would be more beneficial for us to just walk out of the prison cell hmm. maybe just you know maybe not maybe just walk out easier said than done once again simple Thing to do but easier said than done just to be with ourselves witnessing how our inner pattern inner framework inner complexes hang-ups personalities games all these things are you know we live in a prison made of thought form and emotional patterns so if we just walk around trying to fix everything to make those things in themselves feel more settled we try to walk around out fixing things in the outside, arranging things in the outside world to help bring calmness to the inner being that's impossible. 
It's never going to happen. You have to just cultivate a peace inside of yourself. The practice begins, ends with peace. The peace has to be the way, not just the end game. There's tremendous turmoil, anxiety, fear, depression, anger, rage, jealousy, blah, 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 all these negative things that we don't want necessarily within ourselves. Aversion towards those things that is present. Aversion towards things. Aversion. Craving. Craving. Aversion. These are the things present within us. We have to just accept these things as they are. We have to come to a place of peace with these things and allow them to be there in order for us to come free of them. A very funny thing. They have some lesson to teach us. Coming back to just the breath. And understand nothing is going to fix the situation. It's impermanence changing. When you get rid of all this stuff, it seems to come back anyway. So we're not trying to get rid of it. We're just trying to understand its place. Might be a better way to put it. But not intellectually. We're just trying to see. It's a visitor. Rumi had a quote about this. Something like, you know, these are visitors passing through the house. They never stay for very long. But understanding, like, why is this visitor here? Why has this come to my doorstep? What is it it wants to communicate to me? What lesson is it trying to offer me? What is it trying to teach me? I heard one time, pain is the best teacher and no one wants to go to his class. Yet everyone has to. So, the voluntary, conscious engagement with discomfort, certain levels of pain, can become a very liberating thing to do. It can guide us into a place of expansiveness. It can guide us into a way of real transformation because we're, we're not running from it anymore. We're not avoiding it heard Meisterman Well say the other day, what you what what you don't want, what you can't stand, what you hate, oftentimes is really good for you. And a lot of elders say, do one thing you hate every day. Like, uh, David Goggins, who I think is totally insane. <laughs> you know, amazing person in a lot of ways, if you look up who David Goggins is. He's a former Navy SEAL athlete. But I also think he's totally insane. <laughs> I haven't met the guy. Who knows? But... He says, uh, do something that sucks every day. You know, bring yourself into that place where you're forced to find like a resolve, an inner strength, a refreshment, and a, and, and a deeper understanding and perspective as to like why. Why are these circumstances the way that they are? What am I trying to tap into here? And this is this is a, a never ending story. There's no completion on the process. Not like oh one day I've arrived at peace. It's just a way of moving through the soup. And we have to be open to the currents of things. If we 
fight against if we put up the armor, if we are combative, if we are argumentative, a lot of attitude, a lot of resistance. We're compounding and reinforcing the problem. So there's a huge emphasis in many traditions around the quality of a person's character. There's the personality and then there's the character. For those of you that do know me, a lot of people can meet me and meet, understand my personality and get a very confused understanding of who I am. Like, extremely confused. <laughs> I love to say inappropriate things, and I have a very bizarre perspective on the world. But then, and and just to, you know, in, actu- in actuality, though, like, the perspective that I shared through this podcast is more reflective of, of where I come from. But in... Ordinary social engagement, I generally don't get like this kind of deep of topics with people about things. That's why I have this as an outlet for that because it's like you know, when you're hanging out with people, you're not really trying to lecture to them about your understanding of the Dharma. You just look absurd, <laughs> you look totally insane. Like, why are you bothering me with that? I that person might know 50 times more than me. I mean, like, why would I do that to that person? There's a famous saying, do not teach unless asked. So no one's asking me to teach. I'm just talking into a microphone right now. I'm posting it blindly on the internet. If you want to listen to it, great. I'm not forcing you, nor am I trying to tell you anything. You can tell me it's total bullcrap, and that's fine. I'm going to keep doing it. I just enjoy doing it. (laughs) But my point is like that. All right. As to the best that I can, I'm extraordinarily flawed, but I, I try to apply my myself, my character, in the direction of what I'm sharing here. I'm not really into someone that just talks about things and doesn't act upon it. Um, and not just the teaching about the couch. I, you know, I, I try to act in all these other things. You know, compassion, service, and selflessness as much as one can. Whatever the heck, that, how the self can act in selflessness, let me know if you figure that out. But... This is like a, an important thing to understand. Like, you know, we're looking for character. That's that's a discipline. It's a yoga in itself because a character, good character, you know, there's characters in movies and things like that. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the idea of the person's capacity for perseverance, for resolve, for wisdom, for restraint, for self-control, for values and action towards those values, for habits for an openness open heart open mind like these are the things that we want to cultivate within ourselves is this kind of a character this kind of a way of being in the world a way of relating to things that's the kind of thing that's going to open us to the transcendent that's the kind of thing that's going to bring transformation to the world like you know looking at gandhi he's got the crap beaten out of him it's forgiveness not fighting back I mean restraint I mean the level of restraint there I mean is that I've never had that happen to me I don't know what the kind of level of restraint that would require what kind of a heart that would require you know what kind of a compassion comes through with that so I have character like Gandhi that's that's what we want to focus on and then understanding like this is sort of what like a community can help you cultivate is character is how you are relating to the other and what you are putting forth because that's really what i think signifies a certain level of growth spiritually speaking this is something i've heard 
different teachers talk about i think this is something that's really highly promoted a lot in like the native traditions this idea of a good character especially because they're community oriented and you want someone that's going to be there to support what's happening and someone that is coming from a place of thinking for others and this is i read a little story one time in the bathroom (laughs) you know this idea of like the person who was assigned the role of the chief was the one who cared mostly for others there was a guy in native culture that wanted an eagle feather and he tried to do everything he could to get one and he never could get one and he thought himself to be a complete failure and then because of his misery he went out and just couldn't stand to be themselves so he put all of his action and effort energy towards the benefit of other people and reached a certain stage with it where he was presented with an eagle feather and named the chief of the the culture and you know this is kind of like the story of groundhog day right (laughs) with bill murray where it's like okay we have to refine our character that's what releases us from our karmic restraints and he punches that guy in the face <laughs> when he's walking on the street but then later down the line i don't remember what he does he just gives him a box of chocolates and a hug or something like that but this is the thing is that we need to what what transforms our karma and gets us out of this situation and turns his life into something beautiful is the is the transformation of our character and the awakening of of like who we are sharing of our gifts to other people and being open with our heart to what we have to offer the world. So the way to do that, according for the card to today, is just to step into a place of non-reactivity. So I'm going to end this talk here with that. Wish you guys all a non-reactive and healing day. How shall